Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today, and we want to ask that you would please, uh, that your spirit would please abide with us this morning, and uh, I pray that you would give us all wisdom to understand these subjects, and that uh, that you would be with us here, and that you would also be with me and help me to uh, put in uh, my mouth your words, Father, that I may remember to share the uh, correct information this morning. We thank you, and we uh, pray asking this in Jesus' name. Okay, so I got a lot of slides, but I'm probably not going to go through all of them because I really want to share some resources. So uh, I'll get started with, uh, I titled this uh, presentation, Cover Crops, uh, What, When, and Why? Uh, some of the terminology I want to clear up, uh, what, 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 what cover crops actually means, what green manures actually means, and uh, what catch crops and cash crops, these words are thrown around, and I think uh, a lot of folks uh, get them mixed up. So I want to take a little bit of time and I want to go over that, but we'll start with why use cover crops? I think all, everybody hears about cover crops uh, in small agricultural farms and small gardens, as well as uh, in big commercial agriculture. We're seeing uh, cover crops used more and, and more in these practices. So what are the, uh, some of the benefits? And you can see here, some of you have been staring at this slide now for a few minutes. And as we can see, uh, cover crops are grown uh, for one, or organic management or, or organic matter management, which I talked about yesterday in the previous day. Uh, they're also grown primarily to improve ecosystems. The uh, Gulf of Mexico has a lot of uh, eutrophication as well as a lot of rivers and streams throughout the United States. And this is becoming a serious issue because it's destroying water quality and is this water is now contaminated and it's uh, affecting our uh, water resources for our towns and other municipalities. So it's becoming a serious issue and uh, the USDA and NRCS and other powers that be are wanting to regulate these use of these chemicals in the agricultural industry. And cover crops is one of these things that they're actually using to implement to help manage these things. Um, so one of the first things I want to go over is what are cover crops? What are green manures and what are cash crops? What's the difference between these? Um, not not cash like money, but catch, like playing catch. What is the difference between these? So cover crops are used mostly to prevent soil erosion. The idea between a cover crop is in the word cover. That means you are covering the soil, usually over the winter, but in some cases over the summer, depending on whether or not you are actually uh, uh, what, what crops you're planting and when you're growing. But the purpose is to cover the soil and why you'd want to do that is to prevent erosion mostly. Um, another reason is, uh, uh, or another one is green manures. What are green manures? It's a lot like regular manure, except these are crops that you grow and the whole purpose of this would be something like Sudan, for example, is that you grow it to mow or till these tissues, these plant tissues back into your soil and build up your organic matter. This is the predominant reason why you use green manures. Uh, catch crops are a little different. Now, catch crops is something you plant for the purpose of catching nutrients. This is usually done over the winter. And uh, you would put these nutrients down, particularly something like a cereal rye with deep roots that will catch the uh, nitrates and other minerals that are leaching through, uh, through the soil profile going down into water tables, going into streams, and it gets those nutrients and it puts them into plant tissues that are usually a, a high carbon to nitrogen ratio, which means that they're going to uh, metabolize slowly. It's gonna knock, uh, lock those nutrients up and make them available at a different, uh, a different time to the uh, crop that you may be planting next season. So this is the main difference in these words here. Now, I haven't spoken at all about what species you might use, but when you hear these terms in the literature, this is usually what they mean. So we'll talk about cover cropping for soil management uh, to improve. Uh, some of the benefits are really to improve the uh, physical characteristics. And what this is usually referring to is soil aggregation. Now, soil aggregation means the holding together of soil uh, particles, clumps. Now, uh, we can go out to some soils, whether they be clay or sand, and it's really easy to look at them and say, you know, this soil is poor. Uh, the wind blows and it just blow, picks it up and carries it away, which is a type of wind erosion. The water comes and it rain, rain comes, heavy rain comes, and you have these gullies and these, just these washers that take all your soil away, and that destroys, also destroys soil quality by putting excessive sediments into the water, which is in the streams, which uh, other people got to clean out if uh, municipal water sources are, cleaning the, uh, are using that water. So these are different reasons why we want to prevent soil erosion and where you would use cover crops during the, during the winter. 
Um, some other goals is for improving physical characteristics, which is usually just soil aggregation. That's the sticking together, the gluing of soils, which comes from plant exudates, uh, as well as from uh, organic matter that is decomposed. And what is left of it is just this muck, this carbon material that glues them together. It also holds it together. And whether you have a sandy soil or a clay soil or some other soil in between, you are actually going to be improving that soil characteristics of that soil if we increase the organic matter. These are some images of the difference between a soil that has uh, good aggregation and a soil that doesn't. Now, I, I do apologize because um, the projector just doesn't do it justice. <laughs> these images are higher resolution on the computer. If you download these the uh, PowerPoints uh, online and you look at them, you'll, you'll get a better image of what these pictures should look like. But for now, the biggest thing you see here is that the one on the left is very well held together by different aggregates in that soil, usually uh, roots and uh, other exudates from worms and other microorganisms. The one on the right has very little biological uh, life is not as biologically active as the one to the left, usually due to the lack of uh, roots in there. And what that does is that that soil to the right, if I could display it to you, if you put the one to the left in a body of water, it would, it, it would be held together. So if I put it in a jar of water, it would stay together. The one on the right would completely dissolve and drop to the bottom. Um, I, didn't, I don't have those resources to display that to you. That's something that we normally do when we do uh, workshops, soil workshops. And you get to see the difference between two different soils that are properly aggregated. Here's another image showing how roots will pull nutrients and work uh, through the soil. Um, and, and the plant residues break down and hold these soils together, really keeping your soil alive and helping to prevent erosion. Um, here's some more examples of root support, uh, supporting aggregation. Uh, small increases in organic matter can improve crumb structure significantly. Uh, this is why oftentimes you hear the, you'll hear folks say if your soil organic matter is less than 2% or 3%, that your soil is considered dead. Uh, it's not biologically active. You, sometimes you hear these words and what we're saying is that you don't have enough uh, food in there for your microbes and the soil is just going to fall apart. This is some imagery of soil aggregates. Now, I know that word to you, for some of you, doesn't really mean anything, and I hope to define that this morning. So what we're looking at here, you start with in the far left, and you have the macro aggregate. This is a, just a, pretty much something you could almost hold in your hand. The next image to the right, we're breaking away. We're looking at uh, 0.3 millimeters here. And you can see the root hairs, and you see other uh, different structures there that are holding that, uh, those soil clumps together. And then you see the sub-microaggregates. Now we're down at a 0.03 millimeter scale. And you can see particles of soil. You can see part of root hairs. And you can see fungal hyphae and clay colloids in there. And then you break it further down to the uh, 0.003 scale, which is referred to as the primary particles. And what we're seeing is uh, what actually helps to hold moisture together by increasing the micropores and macropores inside the soil. And this is where water is held because the amount of forces that is required to move that water out is greater than in the major pores. Now you start getting into some soil physics, which I, I didn't want to prepare those numbers for you, but I did want to give you an understanding that when you have more uh, micropores, you hold more uh, moisture in that soil and it helps you to increase the uh, water holding capacity of your soil, which means that you don't have to water as much and you get more out of your rain. Here's another image of a soil to the left with low organic matter and a soil to the right with a high organic matter. In both these images, we're looking at the same soil, the same soil series, but two different sides of the fence post. Now, what you see here is one side where it has been managed uh, you, uh, with relatively no cover cropping. Just uh, I think it was strictly corn year after year after year uh, with chemical additions. And on the right, they were using different cover crops and uh, they were uh, using crop rotations and they were building up their soil organic matter. And what happens is you put that both these soils in the water, and what happens is the soil in the, in the left, immediately after, after drying, immediately just turns back to a big chunk, almost like a cookie. And the soil on the right actually stays broken apart, and um, you have still um, pores through there where oxygen can go through and, and air, uh, gas exchanges can happen in that soil, uh, while the one on the left would be essentially compacted. So low organic, uh, low organic matter soils will, will, uh, will do this here. Now we're looking at one type of cover crop here. This is referred to as a till radish. Now I wanted to show you a video on till radish, but unfortunately the internet service that I have is not really working. So uh, I won't be able to show you that. But uh, till radish is a very popular um, 
a cover crop to put down, and the name says it all. It's about tillage. It's about breaking the part, the soil, without actually using the iron. The benefit for uh, the tiller radish is not necessarily just in the radish itself. It may not really benefit you a whole lot, but what it does do is that it breaks that soil down, and it breaks it down deep, oftentimes uh, as deep as 10 meters, which is, um, I forget how many feet that is, about, about 30 feet or so. But the main tap root is usually only about a couple of feet. What you see is the big fat root in the, coming right through here, but uh, those roots go much, much deeper than that. And the benefit you get is when this species dies, when it, uh, and uh, usually late in the winter or early spring, the, the radish will die. And when those roots decay, that opens up the ground for uh, all different types of pores, which microorganisms like worms can go through, and they will actually consume and eat away at those roots. And then when the next crop comes in, it doesn't have to work as hard to get its roots through the soil. Now, as far as I know, with the exception of a few uh, trees, most plants cannot put more than 300 uh, pounds per square inch of forest in the soil. However, uh, 200 pounds is really realistic when it comes to vegetable crops. 200 pounds per square inch, that seems like a lot, but if you get a penetrometer and you start actually puncturing the soil and seeing what 200 pounds per square inch feels like, you'll realize it's not a lot. So roots will definitely take the easier path through the soil if it's available to them. And when they take those paths, it's in the same path where earthworms and other uh, critters in the soil, micro, microbiology, have actually broken down those roots, released those nutrients in that, same, in that same pore space, that same path, and roots from the previous crop will come through and will use those nutrients for, for that year. So this is some of the benefits you get from till radish as a cover crop. Annual ryegrass is a grass that is grown for um, multiple different reasons. It, uh, well, you have two different types. Some of them have, uh, let's see, there's a lot of different types of ryegrasses out there, and I think it can be really confusing sometimes. You have annual ryegrass, perennial ryegrass, cereal ryegrass, and then there's other species within that. You have to be careful which one you're getting, because sometimes you're, I've seen in some bags where it just says ryegrass. Uh, you got to pay attention to what it actually means, so don't just go off of the big label, but you got to pay attention to the smaller labels, too, telling you what it is. So uh, there's a lot less growth in the annual ryegrass above ground, but the below ground uh, root mass is, ma is substantially different. I want to show you some pictures of a man named Jerry Glover out of Salinas, Kansas, and uh, his hobby is to dig pits and uh, dig the roots out of it. And uh, what you see here is, on the right, is um, is an annual ryegrass that he dug out. And I think it's about, I wish, I still don't have a pointer stick. It's about right here. That's where the top of the soil is. So you have a whole lot more biomass beneath your feet than you do above your feet. And what we don't realize about some of these cover crops is what they're doing down in the ground, where we don't see. And the benefits oftentimes are below ground. And it's hard for a farmer or a grower to really understand what they're getting out of these cover crops. Uh, here's an example of a pit that he dug, and he has, he's washing away at the roots and showing you how he does that. And uh, here's another image. Uh, this one is even more impressive. Uh, sometimes folks ask about crop rotations and how crop rotations should be managed. And in your crop rotations, you're told you should use cover crops. Now, if you put a cover crop that is a perennial and uh, you plant it in the spring and you till it all down in the fall and, you know, that's it. And you heard that that particular species, particularly legumes, are supposed to uh, fix a certain amount of nitrogen and have these benefits. But if you don't keep it there for two seasons or a minimum of 20 months, you don't get the benefits that you're really looking for. So this image shows you the difference between something that has been planted for 21 months versus something that was planted for nine months. Same exact species, except a different uh, time and when it was actually tilled. So we look at the left in September, we, when we first planted uh, something, what do we have? We have no roots. Why? Because it's a seed. You go a few months later to December, you can probably barely make it out. I don't even think I can point at it, but I'll try with this thing here. That's it right there. That's your root mass, that tiny little thing, and you got a tap root right there. By March, it starts to improve. We're looking at a, a grass here, so we see the roots start to come down. By June, if it was an annual, oftentimes it's dead. That's all the root you got out of it, compared to a perennial grass. Instead, it'll, go, it'll, it'll grow some more during the summer. It'll go 
But then when you get back to the next year, your roots are much, much deeper. You're almost three meters deep. And then you get to December, you're, you start to, you know, your depth doesn't really substantially increase, but what does increase is your width. By March, by June, you're 22 months after planting that crop. You have a lot more organic matter in that soil than if you simply just left it there during the summer season. And the big point that we're trying to make here is that um, this is why you see a lot of organic farms implementing a two years on, two year off rotation where you take your land, say you got 10 acres, you put two ac uh, five acres into production, another five acres for two years, and you put another five acres out of production into cover crops for two years because you get this type of a benefit. And somebody asked me, I think I've been asked probably, I don't know, at least half a dozen times, how do I, what's the best way to develop organic matter in my soil? I don't have enough. And I say, well, you got to take it out of production, which oftentimes it's not practical for some people, especially if you're farming, uh, you know, thousands of acres, um, large scale farming, that may not be very practical. Small scale farming, organic, a lot of people do it. But again, you got land that you got to take out of production for several years and you're still paying for lease if you're leasing it. So sometimes people don't like to do that. But the science behind that is that these are the species that really do build up your organic matter relatively quickly. Let's see here. I, okay. The example, the, for the, the smaller one, I believe, was an annual, but the, the one for 21 months was a perennial. So another benefit is uh, soil moisture and, and uh, temperature and weed suppression. A lot of times, some of these, this thing died, didn't it? I guess it died. It doesn't, doesn't work anymore. All right. It does, it works? Oh, it, okay. All right. Maybe the batteries are low. I don't know. So soil temperature and, uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Yeah. So soil temperature is another benefit you get from these species. Essentially, what you're doing is you're putting a cover. It's like you're putting a sweater on the ground. Why is this important? Well, the benefit that a lot of folks get from this is that when you have some type of a cover on your soil, you have the benefits of reducing erosion. You have the benefits of uh, whether that's, um, uh, okay, you have the benefits of trapping nutrients, but you also have the benefit of having uh, a lot of plant tissues on the surface of that soil. And what that works as is like a blanket that buffers the temperatures of which the soil will freeze and thaw. So if you live in an area where your soil freezes hard every year, and uh, this is usually going to be up north somewhere. It's not working again, is it? Is it? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so if you live in these areas where the ground freezes, uh, what happens is, is that this buffers uh, the freezing temperatures. And it, so the, the soils will it'll take longer to freeze them, and uh, they'll usually uh, thaw sooner. In some areas, they'll thaw sooner depending on where you are. It's, it's, I can't, you can't make a one-size-fits-all application on this, but in many soils, your, your, your soil will thaw sooner, which means you can get in there and work it sooner. But mostly, the biggest benefit is in areas where your soils are waterlogged. Uh, when you start getting a lot of water going through your soil profile, you really want to increase infiltration, that is vertical movement of moisture, and slow down horizontal movement of that moisture. And this is really uh, the biggest improvement you have because if you can increase that vertical movement of moisture, you're putting more soil through your, through your soil profiles. And that's, that moisture, I'm sorry, you're putting more moisture through those soil profiles, and that moisture you put through there will ultimately become available uh, during the growing season. Again, this is the benefit of mulch. It's essentially working as a mulch. It, uh, some of them, depending on what you're planting, you can lock up, which means uh, uh, make or uh, make unavailable nutrients or immobilize, uh, mobilize those nutrients, or you can mineralize nutrients. It's all about management. I spoke a little bit about those terms later. This is a PowerPoint I, or a video I cannot really show you. Uh, okay. Um, So if, if soils are waterlogged, yes, there's another point I meant to make. Um, the cover crop also will transpire nutrients. So if you live in an area with high moisture, you will move this moisture out of that soil profile as opposed to just not having anything there at all. In areas where uh, they're drought stricken, you can put certain species that help to actually keep the moisture there. So when the wind blows, it won't wick that moisture and pull it off the surface. So whether you live in waterlogged areas where you get too much precipitation or you live in dry areas, you can control your moisture better with cover crops, but you got to take respect. You know, you don't use the same species. Again, I spoke about protecting water quality, and especially with the, uh, I had a map. I'm not sure it's in here. 
No, I don't have it in here. Uh, there is a map that shows how many, how many soils in the United States are contaminated with nitrate. When you get more than, I believe, the limit from the EPA is 10 parts per million of nitrate in your drinking or in your well water, uh, that water is considered not good for human consumption. It's not potable water. There's a lot of water in this country that fits where that category fits, and especially in some of the areas where uh, agriculture used to be practiced rather extensively. And um, some of those areas are in New England. Some of them are in Oregon. Uh, some of them are in uh, Midwest. But a lot of waters have been contaminated. And one of the biggest benefits from using cover crops is that they pull these uh, nutrients up. I showed this slide I think it was Wednesday. This is an example of a field that had uh, rye, uh, cereal rye planted on there. And the cereal, cereal rye was planted in one field, and in the other field there was no planting of cereal rye. It was left bare. And then they took soil samples uh, throughout the winter at different depths in that soil and measured the nitrates in that soil. And what you saw is that the nitrates uh, in the soil with no cover crop was uh, relatively high throughout the soil profile, especially at the lower horizons, down at 30 to 40 um, inches below the so soil surface, and you see where the nitrate is actually moving through the soil. And I talked about how nitrate does not have, is, is negatively charged, so it won't bond to your, uh, your colloids or your humus in your soil. There's no way to really keep it there. It will move through the soil. While the cover crop of cereal rye in that field, you saw almost no nitrates throughout the soil profile. And what that's doing is taking those nutrients, locking them up in plant tissues, which eventually end up in the surface, and will become available to plants at a later time. So this is a huge benefit in cover crops. So we talked a little bit about preventing soil erosion. I want to rush through some of these slides because I really want to show you a couple other things. So here's another, uh, here's another uh, slide that is really important. You've got to kind of take a second to stare at this one until you get an understanding of what it means. But essentially what was telling you here is how much of the ground needs to be covered, what the percentage is of that ground that should be covered in order to have the best results in uh, the prevention of soil erosion. So what we're looking at is that the soil only really needs to be covered, uh, if we look at the percent of surface uh, crop residues, we're looking at about 30% crop residue on your surface of your soil, of your field, will, will result in about a 60% reduction in soil erosion. That's not really a lot. Just, just 30%. And if you start increasing that up to pretty much by 60%, you've taken out 90% of your soil erosion. You don't have, it doesn't have to be really dense, folks. You, you, you don't have to really cover the ground completely in order to uh, see those types of benefits. Uh, this is another great video I wish I could show you, but again, the internet doesn't work. So now I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to take you to... Uh, a few resources. So I'm going to kind of dug down here and I'm going to see if I can do this. You can pay attention to the screen and ignore me down here. Okay, this is a, this is a resource uh, from the USDA. This is a cover crop chart. How many folks have seen this since... Oh, you're not seeing it. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me change some things here. Is that better? All right. This is referred to by some as a cover crop periodic table of elements. Now, there's a lot of cover crops out there, and I could talk to you all day about them. And, uh, well, we don't have all day. So <laughs> the best thing I felt I could do was give you guys resources that you could use. This is free. You can download this on, online. You can get it from your extension agents. You can get it from your local NRCS uh, offices, wherever you live. And uh, essentially, what this is, is that you look on this chart and you say you want to learn something about oh boy I gotta make that bigger you guys can't read that that better yeah let's get rid of the other one there you go you can see it now alright so now say you want to learn something about barley somebody around here told you or maybe your neighbor told you that barley is an excellent cover crop but you don't know what barley is so you just go ahead and you go to the top left and you, before you even click on it you can learn an awful, an awful lot about barley it'll tell you on the top that barley is a grass so if somebody told you barley was a legume, you can go to something like this and find out real quick. No, it's actually a grass. And then uh, should you grow barley when the cool or in the warm? It tells you up on top that this is a cool season crop versus a warm season crop, which is on the right. If you want to know some more characteristics, you look at barley 
Or you can look at the uh, droplets of water and see the color, and it tells you, well, what is the relative water use? Is it low, medium, or high? In this example for barley, we have a light blue, so that means it's a low water use. So if you live in a drought-stricken area, you know, well, okay, I could probably get away with planting barley. Um, another one is the, um, if you want to know the characteristics of what that crop might look like, is it upright, is it uh, upright spreading, or is it a prostrate crop? Well, in this one, we have the image of upright, so we know that it's upright. The growth cycle, is it an annual, is it a perennial, or a biannual? In this example, we have an A, so barley, we know, is an annual crop. So you can learn an awful lot just by staring at one picture. You want to learn a little bit more about barley? You go ahead and you click on it, and it takes you to barley. It gives you the scientific name, Hordium vulgari. Cool season grass, annual, has a picture right here if you don't have any idea what it looks like. And uh, you would get, these pictures are pretty decent quality, but the projector really really doesn't give it justice. So you can go ahead and look at that and it tells you an awful lot of things. So if you got livestock, you want to graze on it, you want to, you, you like to know maybe uh, what the percent of crude protein might be and uh, it, it provides all that there. You can click on the bottom down here if I can get that out of the way. Well, I can't get that little image out of the way. There we go. Okay, so you can go back to the beginning and you can um, click on a different crop. Say maybe you want to learn something about, or maybe you don't know anything about uh, fava beans. What is fava beans? Most people probably don't know what fava beans is. That's relatively unheard of crop for a lot of folks that are just getting into agriculture. And fava beans, uh, before we click on it, we know, well, it's a legume. So we can come to the conclusion you're probably going to get some nitrogen fixation. Then you can look and see that you have, again, it's an upright crop, medium water use, and it is an annual. You can click on it and it does the same thing. And it has so many species in there that this is really, I, I see this as a huge benefit for anyone who's growing. So if you're going to make a crop rotation plan and you're wanting to figure out what cover crops should I introduce, what can I expect from those cover crops, uh, there's a lot of information out there, folks, that you guys can get from your uh, university extensions, from the NRCS, or from any other resource. And if you go to the second page of this, um, this particular spreadsheet, it, shares an awful lot of information down here so it tells you where this data came from it also tells you where you can go to to learn more about cover crops you have the man, uh, managing cover crops profitably which i believe i placed this book on the uh a copy of this book this is a free book it's open to the public it everybody has a right to it so you don't pay for these books you don't have to pay for them okay awesome so it's posted under the handouts it's there you can actually get that book. The Midwest Cover Crops Council, you can go to their website. It's on there, mccc.msu.edu. Excellent source for information on cover crops. Sustainable Agricultural Research and Initiative Program, which is referred to as a SARE from the UC Davis, has tons of, uh, or I'm sorry, this is not SARE. Yeah, there is SARE. From UC Davis has tons of information as well. Uh, NRCS, uh, plants.usda.gov also has more resources that you can get. Um, I have, okay, here's another important thing. Sometimes you hear folks saying, hey, if you plant, uh, in this case, if you, you, know, you shouldn't plant corn year after year. It doesn't like it. You might hear sayings like uh, soybeans and wheat uh, or, or wheat after soybeans is not a good idea or different things like that. Uh, this, this is the third sheet on this, and it tells you essentially what is your crop residue. And if you plant another crop, would it be a high risk? What that means is, do they interfere with each other somehow? And it's it's all in there, and you can plan out exactly. You can see uh, chickpeas. What should you maybe not grow after chickpeas? Uh, buckwheat and lentils would be an example. So there's a lot of information in this, just this one spreadsheet that you can get. So that's a, a free resource I put up for you. My screen keeps flickering. I'm going to see if I can get out of this. I wanted to show you a couple other things. I also place this... Uh, this spreadsheet out, which is another excellent source, uh, but I really didn't want to take you there. I wanted to take you to a different one. There you go. Okay. This is a 54-page book. Now, probably maybe only one person, if that, in here is from Oregon. But I'll tell you something about Oregon. Oregon has 11 out of the 12 soil series. It's got a lot of different climates. This book tells you what cover crops are, would work in which climate. So maybe you're not from Oregon, but uh, I guarantee you, you can learn something from this book. It has tons of information as to what crops you should grow and where, and what benefits you can expect to get from those crops. And it's just, again, another source of a lot of information. Lots of information. 
in this particular book. It's also posted on the AdAgra website under uh, the, sh the uh, Google Drive that I placed on there. And if you want to do some supplemental reading, you really want to get in the weeds and figure out how some of these work, I encourage you to read this book. Also, there is a uh, share has a thumb drive that you can get from them uh, that also has a tremendous amount of information on cover crops. I, I didn't I really folks, there's just so much out there that uh, we need to learn. And a lot of folks have been doing this for a long time. Uh, you don't have to feel like it's an impossibility to figure out all that information. You don't have to think just because I've never farmed before that I'm not going to get the answers I'm looking for. A lot of information is out there, and I, when I was trying to prepare this uh, presentation, I didn't really even know what to talk about because I said everybody has different problems, and you know some folks need to treat their soil different than others. And if I come in here and I only talk about one or two cover crops, I, I don't think that I'm really going to do everybody justice. I'm going to help some people and I'm going to cheat other people. So I felt the best thing I could do was give you guys information. The best thing you can do is start reading that information and figure out what's going to benefit your soils, your farm, or your garden, or your operation, wherever it is that you're growing. Um, I know that some of you are looking for a little more information on this, but uh, the best thing that we can do is point you to the right direction. There's, um, I have other PowerPoints, but uh, they're pretty long. I didn't really want to get into those. So I'd like to really, um, we have a few minutes here. I, what time are we supposed to end? I forgot. 20 minutes. Oh, we got 20 minutes. Okay. Well, all right. I was going to leave the last 15 minutes to questions, but I guess I can leave it to 20. Does anybody have any questions on resources or on cover crops or on the information I presented right now? Which, okay. Well, I saw, I think it was Bob. Yeah, about the simpler terms. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. So the question, the question is, this sheet right here, we're looking at uh, sheet number three in the uh, cover crop uh, table of elements uh, uh, resource that is handed out by the USDA. Uh, is, is, is this just a lilopathic? What, the, what that means is that some plants have the capacity to excrete certain enzymes from their roots that will prohibit the growth of other plants. Alfalfa is particularly notorious for that. Uh, and the answer is, I'm not 100% certain, but... You, what you can do is you go to the second page and all that red right there tells you exactly where that information came from. That's the short answer to that question. I saw that you flashed through something. Okay, he said that he saw something. He saw something there that talked about carbon to nitrogen ratio and he wants to know what does, what does that pertain or what does that have to do with, with uh, cover crops. Okay, I talked about carbon to nitrogen ratio yesterday and the day before, but I know that that's relatively new to a lot of folks, and I'm sure there's folks in here that don't understand what that means. But the importance of carbon to nitrogen ratios is that it dictates the speed at which that organic, those organic tissues will be metabolized or consumed by uh, microorganisms in the soil. Does that make sense? So, if you have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of about 30 which is what bacterial organisms prefer, then uh, you'll have a relatively stable uh, metabolism of those organisms, if it, uh, of those plant tissues, I'm sorry, and plant residues. If it is less than 30, usually what that does is accelerate metabolism, which means that it will quickly decompose and be gone. And, the, and what is important about understanding whether uh, the speed or the, uh, if you would say, the velocity, if you could say, of the um, breaking down of these plant tissues is that it, that breaking down of those plant tissues, like I spoke about on the first day, will make nutrients available to your crop. Now, if those plant tissues are broken down too quickly, those nutrients enter the soil solution too quickly, and that is that the plants that is growing, if any at all, will not be able to use, utilize those nutrients. And you'll lose them through leaching or through volatilization, which means they turn into gases, they leave your soil, and uh, essentially it's wasted fertilizer. And it burns your organic matter too quickly, and you see a reduction in your percent organic matter in your soil. So that's the importance that should be given to carbon to nitrogen ratios in the cover crops that you grow. So if you grow a high carbon to nitrogen ratio cover crop, you are locking up those nutrients and leaving them in the soil. While if you grow a low carbon to nitrogen ratio cover crop, usually those are your legumes that will fix nitrogen. So you want to follow them with a grass or some other cover crop that will lock up those nutrients. Now, I saw a lot of hands rising up, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to begin. Uh, well, I think one over here was the first one. I don't know if it was. Uh, we'll start right here. The best time to, what is the best time to do what? Okay, um, it all, uh, the question is, what is the best time to plant the cover crop? The answer to that question is, depends. 
Depends on what you're growing, depends on where you're growing it, and depends on what you're trying to do. So I don't, I don't have a better question than that right now. Or, I'm sorry, a better answer than that. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is first you need to figure out what you're doing, then figure out what would be the best crop to accomplish that, and then you can find that information online and in these resources. But the answer is depends, because it all depends on, on spe every species is different, and every soil is different, and every climate is different. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll go with him, and then I'll come over here. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, the question is, when you're landlocked and you can't take land out of production, what is the best cover crop to use to get some sort of benefit in a short period of time? You want to use cover crops that grow quickly, like buckwheat. You grow them, they grow, they spurt quickly, you mow them, you get them out of there, you go to the next one. That's my best answer I could give you in this short period of a time. Uh, let me go with uh, Alan, I think. Uh, so my Okay, let me repeat that question now. <laughs> I'm going to repeat it in short. The question is, if you, if you plant perennials, that means multi-season, multi-year, how do you prevent it from becoming a weed by not letting it go to seed? Now, you'll read in the literature, and I'll tell you, and many farms practice this, you've got to mow it before it goes to seed. Don't let it go to seed. As soon as it flowers, mow it. That's the answer. Over here. Okay, I think the short, the short question, again, I'll repeat the question, is uh, what benefits, a scientific research has been done to suggest benefits in giving the soil a Sabbath rest? And I would say that there's more uh, scientific articles out there than I could ever even read. I mean, you could dedicate your life just to reading these articles. There's so many out there in that very subject you're talking about. However, the conclusion that they have come to is that our soils are so destroyed and depleted that they need a lot more than a Sabbath. That's why a lot of them are taking a couple of years off, a couple of years on, a couple of years off, a couple of years on. Remember when, ba when Israel was taken captive and sent to Babylon, they spent 70 years in Babylon while the, while the soil uh, took, uh, uh, had a Sabbath. 70 year Sabbath is what the Lord assigned to that soil. I mean, if we try to give our soil a 70 year Sabbath, forget it. I mean, you're never going to grow anything. So the fact that we're doing something like two years on and two years off is rather conservative because I can assure you, uh, if you're anywhere west of the 100th meridian in the United States, your farm is, your soil has been farmed rather exclusively. And if you're in the west coast, they've probably still been pretty beat up. Not as bad, but pretty beat up. I'm in New England and those soils have just been raped. Those soils have been beat up. There's hardly anything left of them. It's really sad. In New England, where it gets 40 inches of annual precipitation, the ground freezes, I look down and I think I'm in Arizona. Because the soil is so bad. There's hardly any organic matter there. It's nothing but straight dust. And, it, and then I look up, and there's trees, and there's foliage, all this other stuff. And I say, then I look down. It's like, wow, I'm in the desert. I'm in the sand dunes. And then I look up, and I'm in, I'm in New England. <laughs> so, you know, the soils have been really beat up. So, yeah, uh, a lot of scientific rest. Now, I think the second part of that question was actual scientific research. Well, the biggest research is in the increasing of organic matter. Second to that is in whatever parent material is there is weathering. You're using other, uh, what does that mean? I guess I'm, I'm going to define that because some folks don't understand what that means. What that means is that the parent material, whatever rocks form there, whether it's uh, uh, granite or uh, uh, mecca or uh, potassium feldsparts, whatever that rock is, that is your parent material where you are, will weather. That means that the minerals that, are, that create that rock, that are part of that rock, are becoming available through biological processes. In other words, they're taking them out of that stone and turning it into something that can enter the biological life cycles. So that's the next answer for that. Uh, another question. I think we still got time, right? Yeah. Over here. Well, well, uh, the question is: Is annual ryegrass is an, the question is is annual ryegrass better than perennial ryegrass? And my answer to that question again is depends on what you're trying to do. Now, what you're seeing, you'll never get 21 months out of an annual ryegrass. Why? The name says it all. It's an annual. It only grows one year. A per annual means it will grow more than one year, more than one season, sometimes multiple years. So you'll never get that out of an annual ryegrass. Perennial ryegrass is a big caution because in some places that's a weed. And the, the, like uh, the brother back here in the back was saying, you got to mow that thing, or I was saying, and he was asking, you got to mow those plants, uh, not let them go to seed, or they will become a weed, and they'll get out of control. So you got to be careful with what, what species you're, you're using and when you're planting them. Yeah. The question is, 
Is there a benefit to using mixed? Uh, well, you can go out to a lot of the co-ops and buy bags of seed that come with mixed. Uh, well, it's not in there. I forgot where it's at. Uh, come in with mixed uh, uh, varieties of seed. You can get, uh, you'll find maybe Lespedeza, maybe some clover, maybe uh, some rye or vetch or cow peas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yes, there is some benefits because uh, your legumes are going to fix nitrogen and your uh, grasses are usually going to uh, lock that nitrogen up into plant tissues that makes it unavailable in the short term, but it will make it available in the long term. So you're doing multiple different things. So yes, there is a benefit to that. Uh, but again, the question is what are you trying to accomplish as to whether or not that's going to be the best cover crop for you. Okay, next question. Um, you don't necessarily have to. Okay, the question is, do you always have to plant a grass after you plant a legume? And the answer, again, is depends. <laughs> what are you trying to accomplish? And what conditions are your soils in? If you've got soils with really poor organic matter, I would almost lean to the no. Uh, probably want to do legumes for several years before you switch over to grasses. Why? Because you, you're trying to sequester that nitrogen be, and, and build plant tissues with it so that you can build that organic matter. Um, so sometimes what folks will do is, what the brother over here was asking is, mixing the legumes with the grasses uh, and using a mixture of the two in your cover crop so that you're getting the benefit of both. One, the legume is sequestering the nitrogen, and then it's going to the actual grasses, which will lock it up. And uh, will, that means that that stuff will stay, that grass, those plant tissues will stay in your soil for an extended period of time building your organic matter over the long run. But it is a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight or even in one year or in two years. Um, I don't know who was first. I guess I'll start over here. The question he's asking is uh, fast-growing legumes. Um, so most, a lot of your legumes are actually perennials. And the thing is, for a legume to really sequester nitrogen, it needs to build its root mass. And that usually takes one year. And then after that, you start to get your maximum uh, nitrogen fixation potential. Assuming that, you know, many other factors are correct, which would be proper inoculation, uh, good soil health, good root health. Uh, if you have those and you plant the legume, even in your first year, you, you, you're not going to get those 200 pounds or 300 pounds to the acre of nitrogen fixation. You might only get a, 100 pounds. And if your soil is really bad, you may only get 50 pounds, even though, you know, yeah, it's alfalfa or it's clover or whatever. You're not going to get your maximum nitrogen fixation if the soil is not right. Um, I talked about the role of calcium in root health. If, uh, if the ratio of calcium to all other cations in the soil is less than five to one, your, so your roots just deteriorate. Your plant will not survive, and it's certainly not gonna thrive, uh, and you begin to have problems with nitrogen fixation. Because those, those legumes, those, those bacteria, rhizobium, makes those nodules in your roots. And if you don't have healthy roots, you don't have healthy nitrogen fixation. So a fast nitrogen crop, uh, fast clovers. Uh, there's, uh, I think folks have tried cow peas and a, few, a couple other ones, but um, again, we, you, we want to go looking for those and don't expect maximum potential of nitrogen fixation. Yeah, you could try those species as well. I've never grown those. Um, uh, which one? Say those again, I'm sorry. Fertilaria. Ah, okay. I, I think I have heard of sun hemp, but I was actually mixing that up with cannabis in my head. <laughs> the statement was that he could use a, a, a variety no, known as sun hemp, and that, that is not cannabis. It's a legume. Uh, I thought I saw some... Oh, over here. I'm sorry. She asked about uh, the effects of certain crops inhibiting the growth or allelopathic effects of certain crops on other crops. Uh, how long does that last? And uh, usually it's short-term. Uh, so there's studies. Some studies say not a whole lot maybe a, a couple of weeks, and some say maybe a month, but the argument that the USDA is making, if, if you till down a certain crop and you immediately plant that crop uh, or a different crop uh, that would be affected right after you till that down, uh, you're not going to get good uh, seed germination, and your weeds are going to take off. And then once your weeds take off, they choke out the seeds of whatever you planted, and then you're, you're fighting that battle. Okay, the question is, what, what is my uh, opinion on uh, planting a cocktail? What, what do you mean by a cocktail? I mean, uh, four or more cover crops. 
Oh, oh, okay. Well, yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what this brother was asking over here. That's just a mixture of cover crops. Yes, that's excellent. But again, what mixture to use and, uh, and, and what you're trying to accomplish, the answer again is depends. But yes, a lot of folks do do that, and that is a, a relatively uh, good idea. And my main problem as a Oh, yes. That's, yeah, that's usually what they plant them for. Sometimes it's just pasture grass, uh, so they do it for livestock. And they want a variety of different proteins and things so that the livestock is not consuming the same species. I mean, nobody really wants to eat the same exact thing every day. So a lot of times they plant that in pasture grass. But they also do it for uh, building up soil health. The book. Okay, the question is, do I know of a resource where you can uh, mix your uh, or decide how to come up with some sort of a mix for your cover crops? Uh, depending on what you're shooting for. Yeah, the book that we mentioned about being online, uh, Managing Cover Cops for Better Soil Health, I believe is the title. Uh, that book gives you a lot of information on, on, on that. Uh, and a lot of times you got to just sit down and think about, huh, what is best and can I find these seeds? Because sometimes it's tough finding those seeds if they're too expensive. And then when you start calculating shipping costs and other things, it might get prohibitive. So you really, sometimes the biggest challenge I have found is finding the seeds. Oftentimes that is the biggest challenge. You can go to your local co-ops and ask around, see if they got it. If there's extension offices, you can ask there. If you've got uh, consulting places like Wilbur Ellis and some of those guys, oftentimes they don't really do that. So those are oftentimes dead ends, but you can try it. I mean, I don't want to discourage you from going anywhere. Try whatever resource you have available to you. And if you're exhausted in all those resources, uh, well, you have the internet and you got Google and you can practically never exhaust Google. And trust me, there is so much stuff on the internet. You'll find something, definitely. And then, uh, um, I would also start looking for organic farms in your area if you're if that's what you're trying to do and ask the farmers there. Most of those people are usually okay with sharing that information. You know, asking them, hey, what cover crops do you use? What what ratios do you plant? Where do you get your seeds, more importantly? Um, because those are all important things you need to know. And I, there's resources online, but sometimes, you know, just going straight to Johnny's or going straight to one of these big seed places, either they don't have it or they run out of it or they're too expensive. Try other sources. Okay, the question is, what is the best, what is the best method to go from your cover crop to your cash money crop, right? Okay. Um, that's another highly debated argument. Depends on what you're doing. Uh, some folks say to wait. Some folks say till it down. Some folks say plow it down. Some folks say just mow it and then, you know, go to seed. But again, the answer is depends on your soil and what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, it's, this is really a dynamic thing, folks. You're not just going to get a one-size-fits-all. I keep saying that. Every soil is different. Every soil character is different. What you're trying to accomplish. This is why I say you got to start somewhere, make some mistakes, and learn and keep going forward. But try to learn, you know, try to, uh, if, if I can get you to understand some of the principles, then you can start making educated decisions. Okay, by methods, do you mean uh, what tools, what equipment, what tillage, or what timing, or uh, what species to use? What do you mean by methods? Well, I guess maybe some of the, the, the better ones. There are so many different ideas. Okay. Um, some of the better ones, he asked. Uh, the ones where I have personally seen the best results is in the Netherlands. Uh, but most people in here don't have the money to buy that kind of equipment. So... <laughs> So, uh, you, you've got these expensive tractors with attachments and three-point hitches in the front and in the back, and then uh, they're doing single-pass farming. You mow all your cover crop, you spade it all into the ground, you add your amendments, and then you have a grain drill behind that, and you do it all in one pass. Simple as that. You just need money. Uh, okay, Bob, I'll let you go, Bob. <laughs> Oh, okay. Excellent question. Do I have an opinion on the efficiency of crop uh, crimping, which you're probably referring to the folks that uh, use the crimpers when they roll over their crops, the no-till? Um, okay. That's, man, you take me down a whole other route now because, okay, there's studies that have shown with plant tissues, which is why I mentioned his question. I said that you mow it and you immediately till it into the ground. Why? Because those plant tissues, when they're green, they have the maximum amount of protein, nitrogen. As soon as they go yellow, the protein drops. Okay, where does that protein go? It is metabolized. Those proteins are broken down. They're formed into nitrates, which eventually are uh, 
turn into nitrogen gases, which escape the soil. They go back into the atmosphere. So you want maximum nitrogen out of your cover crop. Well, if you're doing the no-till and you come and you crimp those things and you just leave them on the surface, um, they don't, it takes a long time for those things to get into the soil versus mowing it and then just immediately tilling it in. That will mix that, that's that, that organic matter into that pro, uh, into that soil and will put those uh, plant tissues immediately in there, uh, keeping as much as that nitrogen in the ground. Does that make sense? I'm trying to use simple terms. Uh, does that answer your question? Okay. Uh, man, I saw, there, I'll ask this. This gal's been trying to ask a question over here for a while. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Some she's asking. Uh, sometimes you till this stuff into the ground, and then uh, it's, just, it's gone, or you mow it, and, and and then you till it into the ground, and, and it's gone. Uh, well, where does it go? Well, you gotta see. Uh, plant tissues, depending on what they are, are predominantly moisture. So where does it go? Well, water comes out of it. You lose a lot of your weight from water. That's why we refer sometimes you refer to uh, you know, a tonnage of whether it's bales of hay or whatever it is, dry weight versus you know wet flesh weight. Um, uh, but really, uh, it goes straight into microbial metabolism. As soon as you put it into the ground, microbes start working on it. It's just like your compost pile. You start to pack, packing it on there and you notice it changes colors. It's not green anymore. It turns into a yellow or a brown or something else. Yes, okay. Oh, you're talking about the, the seed? Rape seed cover crop. What's my opinion? I've never grown it, so I don't have an opinion, really, personal opinion. I've never grown rapeseed uh, as a cover crop or for any other purpose, and I've never even met anybody that has grown it. I've only heard about it. So I don't have any... Huh? Maybe that's what it is. I, I've, never, I've never done it, so I don't know really what to say. I... I don't feel like I'm qualified to answer that question. I'm sorry. Over here, um, forgot your name. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ricky. So, if you have time. If I got time. <laughs> okay, so if you planted a, no, okay, if you had a cover crop planted, and says, assuming you have the time to do this, and then you, you mow it or you just put a tarp over it? You mow it and then you. You mow it and then you tarp it. Okay, what you're going to do is that you're just going to leave a bunch of plant tissue. I'm sorry? Yeah, pretty much. You're just leaving a bunch of plant tissues on the surface. And depending on whether that tarp can actually breathe. If that tarp can breathe, it's just as good as if you didn't put it down with respect to the loss of nitrate. Which, okay. If it doesn't breathe, then that's going to probably, that's going to, uh, uh, it's going to bring in anaerobic conditions which is going to bring about, uh, uh, let's see, you're not, you got to go back into the nitrogen cycle. you got to understand the nitrogen cycle with respect to nitrogen. Other nutrients are going to do other things, but you're going to probably keep the soil warmer, which is going to increase, uh, again, microbial metabolism. Uh, so, you know, what are you doing? What, what are you trying to do is the question that I keep bringing up. What, what you do is based on what you're trying to do. So the answer is always depends. So building organic matter, um, I would be wary of just, you're probably going to burn too much organic matter because you're going to keep that soil too warm. But that would be my... All right. So if you've got more questions, you can uh, ask them there or you can hunt me down and ask me. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.